Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our dap today, Masachat Yivamot, Dav Kuf Yud, page 110. So we're in the in- middle of a discussion that basically revolves around if you have a Kedushin de Rabbanan, right? A Kedushin that is sort of, that is a Kedushin according to rabbinic law, how can it get switched over into a Kedushin de Raisa? Uh, into a, uh, a a Torah level kedushin, and Rub is basically of the opinion uh, that um, uh, you would not. This doesn't have to be uh, done through bia. That, in other words, even if there's no sexual relationship between, let's say, for example, a man and a katana, right, and a minor, once she reaches uh, maturity, right, once she once she no longer is a minor. That marriage is fully realized um, and that even if they didn't consummate that marriage, uh, that still would still would be considered to be a um, it would still considered to be, be to be now a Kedushin do Raisa, basically. Um, and so the Gemara starts, that's basically the first line of, of, of the staff. My love de la Baal. Right. What is it not the case where he had a sexual relationship with her afterwards? Right. La Deval, right? And so we say, no, this is a case where he did not, where he, sorry, it has to be a case where he did. Okay, Ebal, my Tama de Shmuel. And then it's going to go on to Shmuel's reasoning, right? I'm skipping around a little bit, sort of more just to set up what's going on here. Um, that according to Shmuel, right? Um, that uh, that if you first had, if somebody, uh, you know, um, uh, basically, uh, the, the only way to have that marriage fully realized is actually to have that sexual relationship with each other. And the context of the, under which this takes place is, is that let's say that minor were to marry somebody else, right? The question would be, does that second Kedushin actually have any standing? Does that Kedushin have any hold? And so Rav and Shmuel basically have a machlokas here, which is sort of like, does that Kedushin sort of just move over into a full Kedushin once the minor, once the Katana becomes an adult? Or does there have to be an act, right, which would be the act of Bia, the sexual relationship, which then says that it moves over into a full Kedushin? And then that is basically going to impact whether or not, um, whether or not, you know, you would have to give a get to that second marriage that they're talking about on the stop. I did a very, very quick summary of what is going on here a little bit. Um, but I wanted to then move down to something a little bit interesting, which is they give us actually a story, which I think teaches us a little bit about what how marriage actually works. So did Rub actually say that when he had a sexual relationship with her, the original, mal- the original marriage is valid? Again, we're talking about this case where there's a potential of two marriages. And if he did not have a sexual relationship with her, it would not be valid. Wasn't there an incident in the city of Neresh, right? There was a woman who had Kedushin done. She was betrothed when she was a minor. She became, uh, she grew up, she became an adult, okay? Right? And so what did they do? They put her in the bridal chair, in other words, so this tells us a little bit how marriage was done, right? And so now apparently she had gone to actual chuppah, so now they could actually sort of consummate 
that sexual relationship, before that happens, they would not be allowed to do that. Right? This is a very, very strange story. What happens? That another man comes and like basically took her or like kidnapped her while she was in the marriage chair. And then we had these two students of uh, of Rav, Rav Baruna and Rav Hananel, right? Have Hatam, okay? What did they say? They were there. They did not require her, okay, to actually get a get from that second husband. So in other words, presumably the man who kidnapped her, this woman, he did Kedushim with her. But the point is, is that they just regarded her as fully married to this first husband, even though she only was in the middle of, she only had a chuppah, and there's no way that there actually was a sexual relationship yet, right? Because they only had chuppah. She was literally kidnapped from the chuppah itself. And the second marriage didn't mean anything. And that's why she doesn't even need to get from that second marriage. Amar of Papa, Rav Papa says, So he says in Neirish, they had a different practice, which their practice was, they would marry a woman, okay, Bahadar, um, and then they and would have consummate the sexual relationship, right? They would have a sexual relationship. Bahadar Mutve Abe Kruse. And then afterwards, that's when they would put her in the bridal chair. So what he's trying to say is is Rapapa's trying to say, no, Rav had to have hold that you had to have Bia in order to be considered fully married. And Neirish just was a particular town with a particular set of customs. It's sort of the marriage was consummated before the bridal chair and the ceremony. Ravashi Amar, Ravashi says, who has such a lokagon, right? Ravashi says there's even a different reason. This wasn't done as Rapapa says. Right? This, bri- this person, the bride snatcher, basically the kidnapper, acted improperly, and therefore they treated him improperly. Like, in other words, we can't learn anything from this particular case where Vashi is saying. We're not worrying about whether she could have a get or needs a get from the second marriage because the guy who kidnapped her did something crazy. Like, he kidnapped her and had Kedushin. This isn't regular Kedushin. And so, therefore, the sages basically almost made, like, a, 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 a ruling just for that particular case that that actually... Uh, that wasn't actually a, 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 a actual condition. So I, I just, you know, it's a little bit of a confusing dot, but I think it's interesting to see sort of this idea of, you know, how does, uh, when we have these, a katana who was married, right, this Durabanan uh, Kedushin, how does it get moved over into a Duraisa? And also just to pay attention to these stories, you know, that I think like it, it's an interesting story that they're trying to learn something from, on the one hand, they're trying to infer what Rub's real opinion is because it, it it revolved around two of Rub's students. But I think where the Gemara ultimately lands is, is this story is so outlandish. It's such a crazy story, right? Like, have we ever heard of a story where somebody's actually kidnapped from their chuppah itself that the Gemara basically says, this is not the kind of story that you can learn something from. And I think that's important because, you know, we always see sort of the interplay between you know, Chazal learning at the Halacha, discussing a Mishnah and the Gemara. And then when they bring these real life examples, and here we dafka, we specifically have an example where the Gemara is basically saying, we're not using this as an example. This is such a crazy case. We understand why it was recorded and why it might have been important to preserve. But this isn't case, this kidnapped bride 
cannot be a case that we can learn halacha from uh, for everybody else. And it doesn't really teach us anything about Kedushin itself. So that, of course, is what I find interesting, right? That when we say, oh, they're going to preserve the minority opinions, and we know that's because maybe there will be a need for minority opinion one time, that's assuming that that's, you know, it, it has the same legitimacy as the majority opinion. It just happens to lose out in the game of psak. I don't mean game. You know what I mean? So the fact that this is presented as a, we cannot use this for future cases as a, as a case law, you know, for any kind of future case, and yet we're still going to preserve it, if only to say that you cannot use it for future cases, is itself, I think, very interesting. The other thing I want to comment on is every any time that we've got Hafka'at Kiddushin mentioned, meaning any time it appears in this kind of way of maybe Chazal would undo the Kiddushin that they themselves kind of are the, are the authority behind that makes Kiddushin work, um, I think it always is worth noting because we don't do Hafka'at Kiddushin today, and the fact that there's, you know, that it appears as a, a plausible tool, something that you could use given the, the, the right exigent circumstances, I think is an interesting thing, especially because we don't use it today. Um, okay, I want to go on to the Mishnah. We have a Mishnah on, we're still on Ahmed Aleph, and then Ahmed Bet is very long, so I'm not sure how much of Ahmed Bet we're going to get through, but I can tell you that it all functions basically as commentary and elaboration on this particular Mishnah which is, I would say, you know, some unusual case. So we've got a case of a man who is married to two orphan minors. Remember that um, having more than wife was acceptable. Um, and he has died. Now, what happened? So if we're going to say Yibum or we're going to say Chalitza, Right? Either there's going to be the consummation of the Yibum or there's going to be Chalitza with either one of them will then exempt the other one from having to do the same. Meaning they, even though they're minors, they can exempt the, each can exempt the other um, as long as one of them has either uh, Bia or Chalitza done. Um, presumably this is because it's the same man, right? That's the point. And likewise, we have the same parallel that was drawn in a previous Mishnah that when you've got Ketanot, and this is going to be the Psak for the Ketanot, the Mishnah then says, and likewise for the deaf mutes, right? Again, if there are two of them who are married to a man who dies, and then you have Yibum or Chalitza, um, each one of them would then um, exempt the, the co wife from needing Yibum or Chalitza. Um, okay, and again, here we end up with these are. Marriages that have the authority of rabbinic law, not Torah law, both the cherashot, both the deaf mutes, and also the minors. And the yevamot also end up being a, a matter of rabbinic law. Um, and because they each have the same status, meaning both are ketanot or both are cherashot, they can exempt each other. But then we have the same way we saw this parallel in the previous Mishnah. I'm sorry, I skipped the line. I jumped the line. But if you have um, a man who is married to a minor and also a deaf mute, meaning the two have rabbinic status for the marriage, but they do not have the same rabbinic status, then when you have Bia with one of them or Chalitza with one of them, it will not exempt the other one um, because they, they, each of them, do not have the same rabbinic status, so they can't exempt each other. 
it seems very technical. And also, you can imagine, this is a very practical situation in a world with um, with polygamy, whatever, where they have to determine the man dies. Now, what happens to the, those wives? Do they both need Yibum or Chalitza or, or only one of them? Okay, so now the Mishnah continues. Pikachat v'chereshet. So now what happens if you have a pikeach, but a, a woman, a female pikeach, a pikeach is somebody who's sharp. Or in this case, um, you might say somebody who's um, considered to be halachically um, on the level of making her own decisions, right? That's the point here. Um, so she's considered competent. And the chereshet is, again, a deaf mute. Bia a pikachat poteret a chereshet. So what happens? We say, if there was Yibum or Chalitza with the Pikachat, then we will exempt the Chereshet from needing Bi or Yibum, right? But the reverse is not true, meaning the Chereshet does not exempt the person who's in Pikachat. And why is this? We know already, right? This is a matter of where do you have a rabbinic marriage and where do you have a non-rabbinic marriage? The Pikachat, right? We're not talking about... Um, we're not talking about a minor anymore, right? We're just talking about somebody who's got a, a standing in halacha that exceeds. Again, it's an icky kind of imbalance, but um, who exceed whose competency exceeds that, or according to halacha, exceeds that of the chereshet. So then, okay, what happens? Another imbalance case: so likewise, if you have one man who's married to both an adult and a katana, meaning an adult woman and also a minor girl, then the yibum or chalita with the adult will exempt the minor, and she doesn't have to do anything. She can carry on with her life. But if there's bia or uh, yibum or chalita with a minor, that will not exempt the adult. Again, because there's a different level of status between rabbinic and Torah requirement of what this uh, what this requirement for yibum is. Once the marriage is Doraita, then the then the obligation for Yibum would also end up being Doraita. Um, okay. Yardana, do you have anything you want to comment on this? I don't know if there's I feel like we could either do all of this stuff, which we obviously can't do. Or I'm not sure there's anything in specific that jumps out at me. No, I mean essentially what this Mishnah is is dealing with is, you know, what happens if you have rabbinic marriages to two Tsaros. That's like essentially what this mission is dealing with the Gemara then is sort of going to go through from here and initially try to figure out, um, you know, who is the halacha, uh, who, who is this halacha according to? Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I think it's a good discussion. It's kind of interesting that it appears here, but it's a lot of, you know, it's, um, well, we'll see, we'll see how this goes on to, you know, this whole issue about the minor, and how it impacts Yibum is, is what we're going to get to tomorrow uh, is an interesting status. Because I guess what's sort of happening now is once we have this halachic category of somehow marriage to a minor, and again, it's not a full marriage. So then the Mishnah and now the Gemara sort of has to play around with, well, how does it impact sort of like other halachic categories of either people you can marry or not marry? How does it impact Yibum? Like, it's really just sort of, again, doing what we've seen many times, which is trying to see, we have one halachic category. What's going to be the interplay with other halachic categories? I think that's fair. I think also my favorite, you know, wrinkle that shows up in the rest of this stuff is the case of what about when you have Kharashim, 
meaning deaf mute men who began as hearing, right? Meaning right. they became deaf mute over the course of whatever time after having been married. And now what do you do? Meaning now we're like, let's, we've seen the Gemara do this before, right? Let's make the cases much more complicated. Not that the Mishnah was so straightforward, but relatively straightforward. And now the Gemara is going to come on and like pile on the different conditions to figure out how far does this go? What's the Psa going to be? Right. And the other thing I would say is, is that, you know, I, to me, this is a boundary. These Mishnayos that we've been doing, like, yes, the parrot started off with the real case of refusal. We're in real boundary pushing zone now. Like, it's again, it's just trying to be like, oh, and if I had this with this qualification and this qualification and this qualification, what would the halacha be? I don't right. think so I call, actually real cases. I think they're. I think they're potentially real cases. I think that they, that doesn't mean that they happened. I think that they're cognizant of the fact that these are the cases that could happen. So I would say instead of boundary pushing, like I think sometimes we see something that is truly like, how far could this go? And that's what I, that's what I call boundary pushing. I think you use the term more, um, more broadly. I call this uh, like establishing the parameters. What's going to be the halacha in this, more, you know, more extreme kind of case or with more factors piled on, whatever. But I don't think that it's the kind of case that could never happen. I think yeah, that I, I happen. guess that's true. But I, I think the important piece is it's the extreme. What part of what the Gemara does is it, it it's learning from the regular everyday case is not where you really learn halacha. It's it's specifically from the extreme cases where it actually helps you flesh out the parameters and the meaning uh, and understanding what what is actually going on here, right? Like, how do we actually say you can get from Kedushin to Rabbanan to Kedushin to Raisa? That's how you really get a full understanding of halacha. It's exactly in these types of extreme cases. Yeah, that, that's certainly fair, right? This is how we establish exactly what the halacha is going to be, whether or not it ever comes to pass as a, with, a, with a need to paskin for that particular case. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.